I'm Marty Moskowain. Welcome to Radio Times. The Global Carbon Project is predicting that fossil fuel emissions will be the highest ever this year, with countries emitting more than 36 billion tons of carbon dioxide from burning coal, oil, and natural gas. This report was released at the UN Climate Change Summit taking place in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. World leaders have been meeting to come up with a workable, doable plan to reduce carbon emissions and limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius or 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit. Keep in mind that China, the U.S., the EU, and India are responsible for most of the global fossil fuel emissions. The U.S. gets about half of its energy, or our energy, I should say, from fossil fuels. Justin Moreland has been covering the summit for Time magazine, where he is senior correspondent covering climate change and the intersection of policy, politics, and society. Justin Moreland, nice to have you back with us on Radio Times. Yeah, great to be back. You know, the summit ends on Friday. What has been accomplished so far? Well, um, so the the conference optimistically ends on Friday, but, uh, you know, delegates gathered here with a hope to uh, come up with some big agreements on how how to help support the developing world, as well as, as you said, to to hopefully try to bend the emissions curve a little bit closer to 1.5. Um, you know, thus far, to use a word that's been used quite frequently here, there's sort of a mosaic of different approaches, announcements, initiatives that will hopefully move us a little bit closer to that goal, um, but not yet a huge breakthrough uh, on the the on the scale that I think is is probably needed to get us there. Well, let me pick up on on a couple of things. Let's start at this 1.5 degrees Celsius, the idea of of limiting um, global warming to below that number. What are some of the issues at stake? What are some of the agreements, disagreements, as as delegates discuss this issue? Well, unfortunately, as these conferences tend to go, there was a whole spat and continues to be some discussion about that target uh, uh, you know, just to begin with. So there were some countries that said, uh, you know, actually, it's too late to try to reach that target. We should backtrack. And then that led to a, a whole conflict. Um, but, you know, the, the sort of continued debates are around the role of fossil fuels, uh, how fast we can go and how do we pay for all of this? Uh, there's a big question, particularly for developing countries, you know, how can they get the finance necessary to allow them to really deploy uh, these renewables? So those are some of the live conversations. And how much has the, uh, the the planet warmed since the Industrial Age? So the planet has warmed about 1.1, 1.2 degrees uh, since the beginning of the Industrial Age. And, you know, that 1.5 uh, number is, is pretty close when you think about the fact that a lot of what we do, uh, you know, the emissions, the, the, uh, the warming that we're experiencing today is, is the result of emissions that have already occurred and not necessarily... Uh, emissions that are occurring right now. So we are very close to that 1.5 degree mark. Is there a sense of urgency? And, and I ticked off in, in my introduction all the the climate and weather related um, uh, disasters, frankly, that the world has been dealing with. Also quoting from the UN General Secretary talking about being on the highway to climate hell. Is there a sense of urgency in Sharm el-Sheikh? I think there is. I think the sense of urgency, though, has really coalesced around this question of how do you, how do we, how does 
how does the world address the losses and, and the damages that are already being uh, experienced today? Things like the flooding that happened in Pakistan that left a third of the country underwater. So there's really, I think, a sense of urgency around, you know, what is the mechanism to support those countries? I think the question of how do we uh, implement or how do we keep to 1.5, um, you know, frankly, has, has fallen a little bit uh, on the back burner, at least in the official negotiations. On the outside of the official negotiations, there are a whole ton of initiatives that are accelerating the, the mitigation, the, the you know, emissions reduction push. For example, there was an announcement for $20 billion coming from uh, the U.S., European countries, uh, et cetera, to, to help Indonesia phase out its, its coal. And so there's like a bunch of small things like that. I mean, $20 billion isn't that small, but smaller things relative to the scale um, and that's that, that, that's where you're sensing the sense of urgency on emissions reduction. And can we say that it's really wealthy countries like the United States that have really created the problem and it's the poor developing countries that are having to deal with it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the, the wealthy uh, countries are responsible for the vast majority of historic emissions, right? So if you go back the beginning of the uh, Industrial Revolution, and you look at which countries have, uh, you know, polluted the air with carbon, um, it is almost entirely uh, 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 wealthy countries in the global north. Um, And, you know, those those emissions are what's causing uh, warming and the effects of climate change today. Now, you know, obviously, countries like China um, are growing fast, and they are starting to show up on the figures of uh, you know, who is sort of historically responsible today. But, but you know, by and large, uh, the U.S. is, is uh, or excuse me, the uh, U.S. and Europe are, are, are responsible. And it's astounding when you look at, you know, some of the countries that are hardest hit, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, their impact, their, uh, excuse me, contribution is, is almost negligible. And, the, I mean, has anyone been able to calculate the cost of what it would be to, to help these developing countries mitigate and, and deal with the impact of climate change? Yes. Um, and the number is, is you know, is in the, in the trillions. It's sort of complicated, right? So um, back in 2009, there was a commitment from developed countries uh, you know, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton at the time was, you know, front and center there that said that by 2020, the developed world would contribute $100 billion every year to help countries adapt and mitigate uh, developing countries uh, to help developing countries adapt and mitigate their emissions. Um, uh, that money has sort of, uh, you know, it, it hasn't quite uh, uh, come to fruition. Uh, and, you know, and at the same time, there's new analyses that show that actually you need to add a zero, that the number uh, is actually more like a trillion dollars a year, uh, more than a trillion dollars a year. Now, I'll just say one thing, because I'm sure listeners are saying that is a lot of money. Indeed. And it is. It, it's, it is a lot of money. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it's not a giveaway. Uh, it's investment, right? So it's saying, we'll build this power, we'll help you build this power plant, and then, you know, you'll pay back the return on that. And so in some cases, these kinds of investments will actually generate returns, but but they need to get that money flowing. But it seems to me what happens in sub-Saharan Africa, let's say, is going to have an impact on America, on Philadelphia. I mean, we're, we're learning how interconnected the world actually is. A hundred percent. And I think this point is, is so important um, on multiple levels. Right. So if 
if, uh, you know, uh, sub, if a country in sub-Saharan Africa that's growing really rapidly uh, and, and hasn't thus far really electrified, uh, you know, builds a whole bunch of coal-fired power plants, that is, that is really going to accelerate global emissions. It's going to affect everyone across the world. But it's not just mitigation. If you think about things like adaptation, you know, helping people on the ground adapt to the effects of climate change, that has all sorts of ripple effects, too. You think about migration. You think about the way that migration has, has, uh, has shaped our politics in the U.S. or in Europe. Um, you know, there are a whole bunch of ways in which effects of climate change happening on the ground in the global south affect all of us. And I, and I really think people need to be aware of that and recognize that the money that we spend is A, an investment, uh, which might pay an actual return. We might get that money back. Um, but it also is an investment in our own geopolitical security, our own social stability, uh, you know, in Philadelphia and around the world. Well, let me talk about the United States. President Biden did um, address the summit in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. Uh, now, a little bit of ancient history, the, the U.S. rejected Kyoto. Uh, uh, former President Trump pulled the United States out of the Paris Agreement. What was the response to Biden? So the response to Biden is, is mixed. Everybody is, of course, so happy that the U.S. is back, that the U.S. passed the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, that finally the U.S. has put, um, you know, is back and also putting their money uh, where, their, where their mouth is uh, with regard, you know, not just saying we're going to do great things, but, but spending 300 plus billion dollars to reduce emissions in the U.S. There is still this issue, as I was alluding to earlier, about whether the U.S. is going to pay to help uh, the developing world uh, adapt and and then actually help address some of the losses that are already occurring. And so, you know, there's a lot of enthusiasm that the U.S. is back and also a desire to see the U.S. really step up and help the rest of the world. You had a article about uh, greenwashing companies that, you know, that say they are uh, doing things that are good for the planet, but when all is said and done, they are not. How has this issue come up and, and how are companies going to be held to account? Yeah, so this was a big issue. There's a report that came out on the first days of this conference that really initiated. It was started last year in the in the COP in, in Glasgow, where uh, a whole bunch of countries came, uh, excuse me, companies came and, and made net zero commitments. You know, commitments to eliminate their their carbon footprint. Um, and there was a lot of skepticism about, you know, how do you, you know, is this real? And so the UN Secretary General commissioned a report. That report came out uh, early last week. And um, basically, it, it lays out some really strict guidelines, things like, you know, if you're a fossil fuel company, you can't say that you are moving towards net zero if you're continuing to invest in new fossil fuels. Uh, it says, you know, for companies, uh, you can't just buy carbon offsets, you know, which are basically projects that other people do. Uh, if you haven't done the work to actually look at your own supply chain, look at your own internal operations, and done everything you can uh, to cut emissions there. So it lays out all of these really stringent guidelines. And, you know, I think it remains to be seen, you know, this is a report. It's, it's not a regulatory body. But it remains to be seen how these will ripple. But uh, it was a, a huge uh, a statement, I think, about uh, the, necessi- the necessity of, of really transparent, uh, robust uh, 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 
transparency to uh, ensure that companies are, are not greenwashing. I noticed that Brazil's new president, De Silva, is going to speak today. He is an environmentalist, unlike the previous president. Is there expectation about what he's going to say, knowing, of course, the Amazon is in Brazil? Yes. Well, I think everybody, he's not, he hasn't taken office yet, uh, which presents this really interesting complication where, you know, he's, uh, he's uh, not in the actual official Brazil uh, pavilion where the Brazilian uh, delegation is, but is actually, you know, just located uh, nearby, uh, which is a funny uh, complication. I think, I, I don't know that there's expectation for a concrete commitment, uh, you know, as I was alluding to, he's not doesn't have the authority to make that yet, but I think that his general presence uh, has been a huge, uh, um, uh, um, it has added a lot of excitement, a lot of uh, enthusiasm uh, to the talks here. I just, as I was coming to do this interview, I passed, uh, you know, a standing room, not only, not standing room, it was a standing room waiting area, <laughs> just to, just to, to try to, to get a glimpse of, of Lula. And so, Definitely a a positive uh, infusion of energy here as we go into the final days. Well, Justin Moreland, as always, thank you so much for joining us today on Radio Times. Yeah, thanks for having me. You're very welcome. And he's been covering the summit in Sharm el-Sheikh, uh, Egypt, uh, for Time magazine, where he is senior correspondent covering climate change and the intersection of policy and politics. Michael Mann is waiting in the wings, and we'll be talking more about the climate what we can all do, what governments can do. Do stay with us. We will be right back. Supporting WHYY Penn Medicine, helping to find new cures for cancer. With life-saving clinical trials and advanced surgical techniques, Penn Medicine is offering more hope for patients everywhere. Learn more at pennmedicine.org slash cancer. Penn Medicine, what's next? I'm Marty Moss-Cohen, and you're listening to Radio Times here on WHYY in Philadelphia. The world has made some progress reducing its reliance on fossil fuels by developing and using more renewable energy. And some countries, including the United States, have passed legislation to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. But according to U.N. Secretary Antonio Guterres, quote, global and national climate commitments are falling pitifully short. He told world leaders meeting in Egypt for the UN Climate Summit, quote, we must close the emissions gap before climate catastrophe closes in on us all. Now, it's easy to despair when witnessing all the weather extremes across the planet, blistering heat waves, torrential rain, intense storms, punishing droughts and melting ice sheets, and of course, all the suffering it causes. Our guest, Michael Mann, predicted today's climate crisis 25 years ago, and he was vilified by oil and gas companies and by right-wing media. He is now Presidential Distinguished Professor in the Department of Earth and Environmental Science at the University of Pennsylvania's Center for Science, Sustainability, and the Media. His latest book is The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. Michael Mann, nice to have you back with us on Radio Times. Oh, thanks. It's great to be with you. Nice to have you with us. So let me just make sure our listeners can join us, and you can email us at radiotimes at org. You can tweet us at WHYY Radio Times, and you can always call. That phone number is 1-888-477-9499. I was talking to Justin Worland from uh, Sharm el-Sheikh, talking about this one5 
um, um, goal of, of trying to limit global warming here in, 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 uh, around the world. Is that still a doable goal from your perspective? Yeah, it is. Um, and that's important uh, to be aware that, yes, as I like to say, there is urgency. It requires immediate and concerted action, but there is agency. There is still time to make sure that we meet that goal. Um, in fact, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act uh, passed earlier this year, um, signed into law by President Biden, gets the United States much of the way there. Uh, if we are to avert a warming of one and a half Celsius, that's roughly three degrees Fahrenheit, where we start to see the worst impacts of climate change, right. we need to bring our emissions down, our carbon emissions down globally by about 50% by the end of this decade and down to zero by the middle of the century. The Inflation Reduction Act brings our carbon emissions here in the United States down about 40% by, based on the estimates. And I should mention that some of those estimates actually came from our our own folks uh, here at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, so it gets us most of the way there, but it doesn't get us all the way mm. there. And so it's a reminder that there's still a lot of work to be done. Uh, I'd comment on one more thing here. Uh, the Secretary General um, you know, has been out in front and has been very effective in conveying the, the crisis that we face. But I would take slight issue with the analogy he used. Um, he, he used several, high, but, but, he used several. but sounding the, the alarm clearly. Yeah, no, absolutely. But um, his re reference to uh, us being on a highway to climate hell, that is true. But our foot isn't actually on the accelerator anymore. Hmm. We've taken it off the accelerator and it's lightly on the brakes, which is to say our carbon emissions have stopped going up. That's the good news. The bad news is they've now got to come down, and so we have to hit the brakes pretty sharply. But the first step is taking your foot off the accelerator, and we're starting to do that now. Let, let me just put a couple of uh, some flesh on the bones of the Inflation Reduction Act. We're talking about $370 billion in investment in wind, solar, nuclear, hydrogen, electric vehicles, electric heat pumps. And as you said, cutting if we can do all of that, we can cut emissions in the United States by something like 40% by the year 2030. Um, do we have the technology? Do we have the political will? Do we have the people that can do all of that? Do we have the, the, uh, the, the sort of machinery that we need in order to make that a reality? Yeah, you know, as I, I say in the new climate war, um, the obstacles to doing that are not physical. It's still possible. The laws of physics don't, you know, in any way... Uh, prevent that from happening. Um, and they are not technological. We have the energy technology, the renewable energy technology now, if we were to incentivize it to achieve those reductions. So it's not the, you know, it's not the obstacles aren't uh, physics. Uh, they're not technology. They are entirely political in nature. Um, and so that's, that's the challenge to make sure that we put in place the policies that will incentivize renewable energy that will, you know, first of all, take our, our thumb off the scale. We've got, you know, collectively our thumb at the wrong end of the scale, um, providing all sorts of subsidies and building new fossil fuel infrastructure when we should be providing uh, the incentives for, you know, energy production that doesn't uh, degrade our climate and our planet, renewable energy. And so that's an important thing here at COP27. We need to see a commitment, among other things, 
to there being no new fossil fuel infrastructure. It's critical there be no new fossil fuel infrastructure built because if there is, even the International Energy Agency, which has been, you know, has never been a cheerleader for renewable energy, but they've been very clear on this. There is no path to keeping warming below those catastrophic levels if we don't stop building new fossil fuel infrastructure now. You took on um, the climate deniers, and, and I would say, one, in, in that you were correct about uh, the path that we were on. But I wonder, you know, whether we're now up against a, a sense of futility, feeling as if yeah. we need to give up, that it's too late. I was thinking about this thing called learned helplessness, where it's a psychological state where you get shocked over and over again, and then you finally just give up and feeling hopeless and helpless. And I wonder whether that is also a kind of a threat to doing something about our climate. It, it is, and, and that's very much a thesis of the book as well, um, that one of the primary obstacles, uh, ironically, now to achieving the action that's necessary is doomism and, and despair uh, mongering. And, you know, it's the, the, the new climate war is about, you know, we've gotten past denial. Everybody can see climate change is happening. So polluters can no longer convince us that, you know, it's not happening. We've gotten past denial. But what they've done is they've used all these other tactics, uh, delay, division, deflection, and despair mongering. If they can convince us it's too late to do anything about the problem, it potentially leads us down that same path of inaction. And they don't care about the path we take. They just care about the destination. They want us not on the front lines but on the sidelines. So it's so important to keep that in mind. And, you know, I'm buoyed by the fact that um, there are, you know, thousands and thousands of, of, of young folks uh, there in Sharm el-Sheikh um, protesting, marching, demanding that we take action. And that's the right thing, not to give up hope, not to despair, but to be there on the front lines, you know, speaking truth to power and demanding even more than we're seeing. I mentioned, uh, the, you know, the goal of, of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius or 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit. And we had a number of callers saying we should use the Fahrenheit number because it's it's how we measure, <laughs> certainly in this country, but maybe gives us a better sense of, of, of what we're really talking about here. Yeah, the scientist in me, of course, uh, prefers to use Celsius sure. because that's sure. what we use in science. But the, 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 the communicator in me recognizes that we have to meet people where they are. And here in the United States, we still think about temperatures um, in terms of Fahrenheit. And so, you know, I always do that translation when I'm speaking to American audiences. Uh, I, I say what the Celsius number is because that's officially what the discussion is about. Um, but... Uh, you know, they, um, the, you, okay? you, you have to, again, you have to meet people where they are. And so there's somebody at my door right now. Okay, I can hear the, the barking. Don't answer that, that door, Michael Mann. <laughs> <laughs> Stay with us. Let me just quickly reintroduce you. And that is Michael Mann uh, with his dog barking at the door. He is, uh, he's currently now actually a brand new job at the University of Pennsylvania, presidential distinguished professor in the Department of I'm Earth and Environmental Science. I will speak very slowly here, slowly rather, at the University of Pennsylvania Center for Science, Sustainability, and the Media. And yes, he has a relatively new book. It came out this year called The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. And as he mentioned, uh, denialism um, um, is is not a plan in trying to address the 
threats of climate change and what can be done. And again, you can email us at radiotimes at org. You can tweet us at WHYY Radio Times. And you can always call us. That phone number is one eight 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 four seven seven nine four nine nine. Are you back with us, Michael Mann? I am. Sorry okay. about that. And it's not my dog. It's my neighbor's dog. <laughs> okay. There you go. Uh, what would be, I mean, if we're going to talk about getting off fossil fuels, obviously, you know, that, that means developing renewables. And I heard this morning on NPR that the U.S. gets about half of our energy from fossil fuels. Just how quickly can we can we move to renewables and um, can that power our economy? And what is the role of nuclear power from your perspective? Yeah, so, you know, there have been a number of studies. Um, uh, there are folks like Mark Jacobson at Stanford. Uh, there's another group at UC Berkeley that have sort of, you know, crunched the numbers and, and looked at existing technology um, and how quickly it could be scaled up. So, you know, there's wind, there's solar, there's geothermal. Um, there's, of course, energy conservation. Um, there are measures, there are ways now to store energy, which is critical um, when, when you're dealing with, you know, potentially intermittent sources of energy like wind and solar. And so we have the technology to do that. And as I said, the Inflation Reduction Act, um, if it's implemented, and that's critical, um, it's one thing to sign something into law. It's something else for Congress to you know, to to go along with it. And of course, right now, there's some uncertainty as to uh, who, you know, who will actually, for example, control the House of Representatives. Um, there's the potential that uh, you could have some obstruction, some efforts to block uh, the, you know, the, 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 you know, the provisions that have already been signed into law. So we have to keep that in mind. But if we basically do what we've said we're going to do, we get most of the way there. Uh, that gets us about 40% uh, reductions. And all of that funding that, you, you know, those hundreds of millions of dollars are going to go towards uh, incentivizing renewable energy, um, uh, incentivizing uh, electrification, electric vehicles that can then, you know, run off of, uh, you know, elect, uh, you know uh, green energy, green electricity. Um, it's going to put uh, caps on uh, methane uh, emissions. And so there are all of these provisions that, if they're implemented, get us most of the way there. And I say most of the way there because it doesn't get us all the way there. And that means we've got to go farther, right? We've got to sure. pass even more aggressive climate legislation. And, and that's going to be a challenge depending on what Congress shapes up uh, to, to look like in these next couple of years. And what do you see as the role of, of nuclear power in that mix of, of energy sources. Yeah, so I talk about that in the new climate war. You know, I'm open-minded. I think all options should be on the table. But when you start to look into it, uh, nuclear energy is actually more expensive um, on a levelized basis than uh, – nuclear energy is more expensive on a levelized basis than renewable energy. So it actually costs more. And that means that if we're investing, uh, say, in nuclear energy, we're pr- potentially crowding out investment in even cheaper uh, renewable energy. Plus, nuclear energy, as we know, we're reminded very much now, given the geopolitical situation that we have right now with Russia's aggression um, against Ukraine and now the potential involvement of NATO uh, based on what's happened in Poland uh, and, and Russia's threat to use 
tactical nuclear weapons, we are reminded of the danger of having fissionable materials around. And there's, of course, the environmental uh, threat as well, which came to light when you know nuclear power plants were threatened in, during the same war, um, and there was the, the, the danger sure. of uh, nuclear uh, waste being released in, in, into the environment. And so it comes with uh, all sorts of potential additional liabilities that lead me to conclude, if we can do it with safe, clean, renewable energy, why are we going to take that path? Interesting. Here's a comment from Kate. Uh, She says, even if we limit the temperature to 1.5 degrees Celsius, will we still have the heat waves that we've been seeing and more devastating storms? And then she asks, is it baked in? Yeah, so, you know, some of it is baked in. Um, Some of the, you know, the warming, if we stop emissions, if we bring them down 50% this decade and down to zero by the middle of the century, and we stabilize warming at about three degrees Fahrenheit, um, temperatures will stay at about that level for decades to come. We're sort of committed with that level of warming in the absence of, you know, uh, additional new technology, which is not yet available to literally suck carbon back out of the atmosphere. That's probably not going to happen if it does happen for decades to come, that sort of technology. And so we're going to be sort of stuck with temperatures, global temperatures being about where they are now. And that means many of the impacts that are due to those elevated temperatures, uh, the more extreme weather events you know, that we've experienced here in Philadelphia, uh, the disastrous flooding with Hurricane Ida, those sorts of impacts are sort of here to stay for some time, that's the bad news. The good news is, by all measures, we are still within our sort of range of adaptive capacity. If things don't get worse than they are now, we have the infrastructure, we have the ability to adapt to those changes and to to institute resilience measures to help us cope with those changes. But if we allow the planet to warm more, at some point soon, we start to exceed that adaptive capacity. That's the real concern. That's why there is the agency. It's not too late, but there is the urgency. We have to act quickly. Well, and you're talking about, um, what, retrofitting our infrastructure so that we can, what, hold off sea level rise and, and the threat of storms or even do some planned retreat, which, you know, when there are storms that that just devastate communities one storm after the other, there is the question about why stay here? Maybe even the insurance companies will say, we're not going to insure your house anymore because it keeps getting washed away. Yeah. um, I mean, that's, you know, the, the, the sort of first step in you know, uninhabitability is uninsurability right. as, as, you know, our coastlines um, become increasingly prone to sea level rise, uh, more damaging tropical storms and hurricanes um, as some of our, you know, uh, some regions of the planet become too hot or too wildfire prone, like large swaths now of the, of the western U.S., um, those areas will become uninsurable for human habitation as well and uninhabitable. So we have to recognize that we are going to have to deal with some, you know, dangerous climate change 
is here by some measure, and we're going to have to deal with it. We're going to have to put in place resilience measures. Um, you know, Justin Warland was talking about the importance of providing support to the global south and the developing world so they can cope with the impacts they're already feeling. In many respects, they're feeling worse consequences than we are, and, we, and they had much less uh, role in creating the problem in the first place, and that's what makes um, those uh, reparations uh, so important. Um, one of the main topics of discussion right now at COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh. And that is uh, Michael Mann, our guest today on Radio Times. We're talking about what can be done to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And again, he is a professor in the Department of Earth and Environmental Science at the University of Pennsylvania Center for Science, Sustainability, and the Media. His uh, most recent book is The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. You can email us at radiotimes at whyy.org, and you can tweet us at whyy radio times. We'll be right back. Supporting WHYY, Penn Medicine, helping to find new cures for cancer. With life-saving clinical trials and advanced surgical techniques, Penn Medicine is offering more hope for patients everywhere. Learn more at pennmedicine.org slash cancer. Penn Medicine, what's next? This is Radio Times here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moscowain talking with uh, Michael Mann. Uh, the debate about climate change is over. It's real. It's being felt around the world. We heard earlier in the hour uh, a report from the UN Climate Conference taking place in Egypt. And now we're talking with our guest, Michael Mann, about what can be done to reduce greenhouse gas emissions before it is too late. Michael, we got a lot of comments here. Let me read a couple of them. One from Harry. He says there are ways to remove carbon from the atmosphere using chemicals and turning it into fuel. We need a Manhattan-level effort to do that. Can you speak to his comment there? Yeah. Um, you know, there are... We, we, uh, is that it was turning what into fuel again? Oh, gosh. The, uh, <laughs> sorry, the, the, uh, uh, the little message just got erased. Oh, uh, removing carbon from the atmosphere using chemicals. There you go. Yeah. Um, you know, carbon capture and sequestration, I sort of alluded to this a little bit um, a, a bit earlier in our conversation. Uh, you know, there are ways to try to remove carbon from the atmosphere or to try to remove it from, you know, smokestacks before it gets into the atmosphere. Um, so there's carbon uh, capture and sequestration with coal-fired power plants. You can ca try to capture that carbon. Or there's direct air capture. You can try to literally suck the carbon back out of the atmosphere, um, you know, literally trying to put the genie back in the bottle. And we know that's never easy. It's never an easy thing to do. It's yeah. expensive. And you're fighting the laws of physics in doing it. Um, so here's the thing. Down the road, um, certainly direct air capture may be an important technology for us to reduce um, the level of CO2 in the atmosphere. Uh, certainly if we want to bring those CO2 levels back down and actually start to cool the planet down, uh, we're going to need to use uh, some sort of uh, technology of that sort. What I worry about, and I talk about this, I have a whole chapter on it actually in the new climate war. What I worry about right now is that you know, this technology is not viable at scale right now, and yet it's being used very effectively by polluters um, as a, a sort of... Um, you know, a ticket to continue to pollute, this idea that, uh, well, we'll fix this problem later, trust us. So allow us to continue to extract and, and sell and burn fossil fuels now. 
Um, it's really right now being used as an excuse for businesses as, uh, business as usual, and that's really problematic. So we have to beware of you know, the idea that uh, technological fixes are going to get us out of this problem um, and the, the idea that that somehow takes the pressure off of um, scaling up known solutions, renewable energy right now. Even people like Bill Gates really fall into that fallacy um, in, in his climate change book, um, really buys into this idea that we can't get there through renewable energy, so we're going to have to turn to risky techno fixes. That's just wrong on the science, and it leads us down the wrong path. Here's a comment from Luann. Can you talk about what citizens can do in their own lives? I'm thinking about electric heat pumps. Is there an initiative to get more people to use them? And I, I, I've interviewed you about your book before, Michael Mann, and I know, um, yes, obviously people should do things in their lives to make a difference. But one of yeah. the things that you say is that, that we really need to have – um, our, our policy and our, our corporations step up to the plate and our politicians step up to the plate because that's really where it's going to make a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not either or, it's both. Right. Uh, we should all do everything we can to reduce our environmental footprint and our carbon emissions. Um, and certainly, you know, uh, switching to a heat pump, um, uh, electing a, a power plan that comes to renewable energy, which we do. So, you know, when we charge up our, uh, you know, hybrid electric car, hmm. we're charging it off of renewable energy because our electricity comes from a plan that, um, that is entirely uh, wind and renewables. Um, so there are things that we can do in our everyday lives, obviously, but you know what? It shouldn't cost more to elect to get your electricity from a carbon-free source. It shouldn't cost more to you know, purchase a, an electric vehicle. What we need are incentives that make it so that not just those of us who really care about the problem take action, but that everybody takes the right actions without even thinking about it because the economic incentives are for them to make decisions that are right for the planet. Um, and that's, you know, we can't do that ourselves as individuals. We can't price, put a price on carbon. We can't provide subsidies to the renewable energy industry. We can't block new fossil fuel infrastructure, although some activists have cer certainly right. tried to do that. Um, we need our politicians to take those actions, to do those things that we can't do ourselves, and to create the policy incentives that lead us collectively in the right direction. You mentioned electric vehicles. I was reading that um, electric vehicles are about 13% of new vehicle sales worldwide. It's much smaller than that here in the United States. And these cars are often pretty expensive, even if the, the maintenance is, is less than a, a fossil fuel-powered vehicle. What do you see as the role of EVs? Yeah, well, they're going to be critical. We have to decarbonize the transportation sector. It's a, it's a substantial source of carbon emissions globally and here in the United States. Um, and, you know, the easiest way to do that, of course, is to uh, electrify our, our vehicles and then to decarbonize our grid. So, like I said, so you're charging up your car in the morning and that electricity is coming from wind or yeah. solar or renewable sources. And we need, you know, incentives that Obviously, it shouldn't be more expensive to to purchase uh, a, an electric vehicle, and so that's where government comes in. We provide subsidies um, to help people make 
uh, that decision, to encourage them to make that decision. We, um, you know, uh, unfortunately, right now here in the United States, we have the opposite. Like I said before, we, in some sense, are, the thumb is on the wrong end of the scale because we've got the fossil fuel industry and, um, you know, and those uh, who sort of advocate for them, dark money groups that have been attacking um, state-level efforts um, to provide subsidies for uh, wind and solar. We have this fossil fuel-driven campaign to try to prevent us from taking those actions. In North Carolina, when there was a Republican supermajority, they literally tried to outlaw the sale of Teslas. They wanted to make it illegal to buy an electric vehicle. That is how... Those are the, sort of the dirty tactics that the fossil fuel industry and, and the politicians in their pay are, are using to try to block this necessary transition. And again, that's where government comes in. That's where we need you know, to elect politicians who will do what's right for us rather than politicians who are just a rubber stamp for polluters. Here's a comment from Rick, and this is about the the climate summit that's taking place in Egypt. He says the United Nations isn't going to do anything really meaningful. It's just a lot of talk. And just to add to that, there was this climate action tracker, and they found that no major polluter has adopted the Paris Agreement of limiting warming to this 1.5 degrees Celsius, 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit. When you look at the the track record of uh, these UN climate summits, uh, what's your takeaway? Yeah, I think that's a slightly skewed, um, you know, description of things. And I understand there are people who are frustrated and they want to see more action. Um, We all do. But it's actually not helpful to dismiss the progress that we're making. It potentially leads us down, like I said before, the the wrong path. Um, Some of the desperation that we're seeing, some of the the acts of sort of vandalism or pseudo-vandalism by some protesters are an expression, uh, not just of frustration, but uh, they are driven in part by the belief that it's too late to do anything, like we talked about, or that we're not doing anything. Their argument is often, well, you know, the current mechanisms aren't working. We're not making any progress, so we've got to do something desperate. That sort of thinking could lead us to engage in really dangerous geoengineering uh, ventures where we shoot pollutants into the stratosphere to try to block out the sunlight or dump Mm. chemicals into the ocean. There are all sorts of potential acts of desperation that could grow out of the wrong sense that we're not making progress through the mechanisms that are in place, the, uh, you know, the multilateral negotiations that are fostered by the UN process, the conferences of the parties like COP27 right now. Um, we are making substantial progress, not quite enough, but we have now brought carbon emissions to a peak. They're no longer rising. That's a huge development. And if countries implement the policies they've already agreed to based on COP26 last year, that likely, by current calculations, keeps warming below 2 degrees Celsius, which is, you know, we were headed towards 4 degrees Celsius mm-hmm. back um, at the time of Paris. Now we've, we've cut that almost in half as to where we're headed towards. So we've made a lot of progress. It's not enough progress. It's possible to hold both, both of these thoughts in your mind simultaneously, that we are making progress, but it isn't enough progress. And too often, we sort of turn it into this binary 
um, framing where, you know, either we're doing everything we need to do or it's a lost cause. That's not the case. We're making progress. We've got to make more progress. Ray has a comment. Why aren't we talking about reducing consumption? That is where it starts. And I saw in today's paper there are now 8 billion people uh, on the planet. And I wonder, Michael Mann, if you could talk about just uh, the fact that there's so many of us on the planet and and that impact on the environment and also this issue of consumption. Yeah, I mean, you know, there are sort of multiple challenges here. There's the climate crisis, uh, but there are other challenges to environmental sustainability, air and water pollution, overfishing, um, uh, the list habitat destruction, uh, which in part may be spurring some of these uh, novel um, outbreaks that we're now dealing with, uh, pandemics that we're now dealing with. So there are these multiple planetary boundaries, these limits um, to uh, a sustainable existence on this planet that we're coming up against. Climate change is just one of them. Now, if we were, for example, to move entirely away from fossil fuel energy towards renewable energy, we could bring those carbon emissions to zero. Um, Arguably, we could meet the challenge of stabilizing the warming of the planet. We could deal with the climate crisis. But that doesn't mean we wouldn't be on a path that potentially conflicts with, again, a sustainable existence on this planet. If we continue to consume resources, this is a finite planet. It's got finite resources. And ultimately, uh, a pathway of resource-driven, ever-growing global economic growth is going to come up at some point um, against the limits of environmental sustainability. And so there is this larger challenge that we need to be thinking about, about how we move away from you know, this um, resource-driven economy, the continued extraction of uh, finite resources. Um, ultimately, that's a larger problem that we have to tackle. Uh, the climate crisis is something we've got to tackle now. And mm-hmm. so the argument that I make, um, and I make it in the book, and I make it whenever I talk about this, is right now we've got to work within the system to make sure that we address the climate crisis now while working towards ultimately changing the system so that it does become more compatible with a sustainable existence on this planet that we live on. Here's a comment from Trish. Is anyone looking at the depletion of oxygen in our atmosphere since we are killing all our trees and phytoplankton? And I was reading about the Amazon uh, rainforest, which has lost something like 17% of the total forest is lost. Um, But just the important role of of forestation when it comes to dealing with the, the impact of climate change. Yeah, and there's, you know, the reality, which is, which is serious. There's also the mythology. And uh, we often hear, you know, the Amazon uh, referred to as the lungs of the planet. Yes, and I remember I've said uh, that was myself, about yes. That. <laughs> yeah, it was a report about that, and I tweeted about that. And a colleague of mine who's an expert, who's one of the leading experts in, in sort of these global geochemical cycles, pointed out that's just not true. It, it's a myth. It's a myth that gets stated over and over again. And it's all sort of traced back to, like, one, <laughs> one article. Um, uh, it, it is true that uh, the terrestrial biosphere plays a role in the regulation of carbon and oxygen in uh, the uh, you know the in the atmosphere, but the controls on uh, in, on uh, atmospheric oxygen 
really are the global oceans and uh, sort of the, uh, the, the geology uh, of the Earth and these global geochemical cycles. And, you know, if the Amazon were to disappear, oxygen levels wouldn't drop, you know, uh, noticeably, but that would still be a terrible loss. Um, It's a source of tremendous biodiversity. It is a carbon store. The Amazon helps collectively pull carbon out of the atmosphere. And so it's what we call a carbon sink. It's helping us in the climate battle. But if we continue to deforest the the Amazon, um, if we burn um, the trees, if we replace uh, those forests with agricultural land, for example, the calculations are in a matter of decades, uh, the Amazon could go from being a sink of carbon to being a source, to actually adding more carbon, an aggravating factor uh, in the climate crisis. The good news there is, of course, with um, the new uh, president of Brazil, um, there seems to be a commitment now to move away from the path um, that we were on with Bolsonaro, um, uh, the, this path of uh, ever greater destruction of the Amazon rainforest. So there's a little bit of a ray of hope there that maybe we will start to turn that around. Well, we're just about out of time, but uh, Chuck uh, called in to say that we should uh, adopt the slogan, Make America Green Again. Do you like that idea, Michael Mann? You know, I, I love that. Let's reclaim <laughs> you would. MAGA. Let's yeah, reclaim make MAGA America for, green again. For its right, yeah, I love that. <laughs> okay. I, I think I, I will credit. What's, who's the name of the uh, caller? Uh, Chuck. I will credit Chuck when, when I use that. Thank you. You're very welcome. Michael Mann, thanks for joining us today on Radio Times. Uh, thank you. Always a pleasure, Marty. Thanks so much. And he's professor, director of the Center for Science, Sustainability, and the Media at the University of Pennsylvania, author of The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. To replay this hour, many more hours of Radio Times, go to whyy.org and look for Radio Times under programs. And you can always download a podcast of the show wherever you get your podcasts. Diana Martinez, the engineer for today's edition of Radio Times, the show produced by Debbie Builder and Paige Murray Bessler. I'm Marty Moscow. Thank you so much for joining us. 